I even thought it might have been the soul of, of my friend Jim Pike come back from the dead. And I'm, I don't exclude the possibility either, uh, Charles. I'm not willing to exclude the possibility that Jim Pike came back to me as his son Jimmy came back to him because it had a tremendous interest in early Christian theology and in Zoroastrianism, which Jim Pike had confessed to me once he believed was probably the true religion. It was very versed in Zoroastrianism and knew a great deal about the Essenes and the therapeutic. Hey, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from all over the world, to your brain hole. We've got our sogum tubes jammed up our butts. We're ready to take the food in and puke it back out and do a show for you. So uh, this time it's counterclock world. And um, boy, this this should be an interesting episode. Um, it's also going to be... They want to disgorge. <laughs> yes. Um, and we've got a special guest with us today. Um, coming from Bangalore, India. Uh, JP is a writer, poet, uh, metal bass player, and cat rescuer. Um, JP, why don't you introduce yourself to the dickheads and uh, tell them a little bit more details about what you do and who you are. Sure thing. Hi, dickheads. So, uh, yes, I am a writer. I mostly write weird fiction. Um, I've got Two little chapbooks of uh, of horror stories out from Dunham's Manor Press. Uh, more recently, I've self-published a collection called Come Tomorrow, which contains most of my short stories that are based in the city of Bangalore, uh, sort of trying to draw on the rich and varied history of my own city and create a sort of low-key Bangalore mythos. Um, a novella of mine called Strength of Water was published last year, late last year. So that's one of my latest things. And I have a collection of poetry called Broken Cup coming out uh, later this month, in fact, this, this July. Mm. Mm. I play the bass guitar for a doom metal band called Gin and Miskatonic. Mm. Uh, we've got two CDs out and, uh, and a split vinyl with uh, Sky Shadow Obelisk, which is a doom band uh, from, uh, from Rhode Island, I think. Mm. And yes, I... My wife and I rescue cats and dogs. Our house is full of them. Uh, I'm in a room right now that's animal free, <laughs> just for an hour or so. Right. And that tells you most of the things about me. Yep. It, and so um, we are going to talk about Counterclock World, but first we're going to um, do our normal segments and we're going to start with the PKD news. There was a cool article about, and this does relate to Counterclock World, um, on tabletmag.com, there was a really cool new article about uh, Phil K. Dick and James Pike, who is the um, Archbishop of San Francisco that PKD considered with Tony Boucher to be two of his most important mentors. Um, he eventually wrote a book, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, about James Pike. But James Pike was also partially the inspiration for Anarch Peak here in uh, Counterclock World. Um, mm. And uh, so this article is just specifically about PKD and James Pike. And it just came out a couple days ago. 
So, uh, and that's on uh, tabletmag.com. And uh, I found it to be a really good, uh, interesting article about that relationship because, um, and it also talks a lot about James Peake's uh, weird death, which he died wandering in the desert in Israel, Hmm. um, which he went on a trip there. They were looking for some kind of, he was on some kind of spiritual quest in Israel and his car ran out of gas. And he and his wife went in two different directions trying to find help. And she found help, and he did not. Um, and this was a – this and Tony Boucher's death were the two deaths that had the biggest impact on PKD in the 60s um, because he considered him – he was his Gnostic religious – Well, so what year did he die? I will look to see. All right. In Divine Invasions, but... Um... Anyway, while David is a bad teacher and doesn't have the right notes, Larry, um, if you know, for those of us who, who weren't introduced at the start of the podcast, uh, like normal, um, who, who are you, again, who asked that question? Oh, I'm sorry. I did a bad job. I'm one. That's right. That's my buddy. Yeah. And who are you? Oh, I am uh, Anthony's Sacrament of Miraculous Rebirth Trevino, and um, I am the Dickheads Podcast resident annoying Harlequin. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. 69. 69. Yeah. There we go. Anywho, the other news is that the new Oak, the um, Oak Chaku, uh, how do we pronounce Otaku. it? Otaku. Oh, what? <laughs> Otaku. <laughs> That's Otaku, dude. Ochaku. <laughs> Not Nunchaku, David. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm sorry. Anyways, issue number 41 came out. And um, issue number 41 um, is very good. And we have a review up on our Dickheads uh, Facebook. And I did, one for, I did one for my blog. And it's... You know, it's another good journal, uh, 41 issues in, you kind of know what you're going to get, but it um, has some really interesting and good letters. And what, two of the things that I thought were really good on this issue was there was a collection of articles from Speculation Magazine, which was a fanzine out of the UK in the 60s. And there's a review of the Three Stigmata, like a four-page review of the Three Stigmata from the mid-60s that is fantastic. Uh some interviews from the Italian translator who just recently passed. And he also talks about the challenges and the differences of, um, of uh, translating Delaney's Dahlgren versus translating Dick. That was very interesting. And then um, there is at the uh, end of the issue, which is really interesting is two letters from Ted White, who was a editor who worked on the serialized version of we can build you. Yeah, it's another great newsletter. And then the last um, item of news uh, or that I think is newsworthy is that Total Recall had its 30th anniversary. So anyways, uh, on to the next segment, which is uh, Dick Like Suggestions. Um, Larry, what video game do you have for us today? <laughs> or do you have video, don't have video games today? Whoa! What do you got for us? I have a TV show and a movie. Whoa! uh, I'll go through it really quick. First of all, I saw the movie the other day. Fantastic mid-90s, horrible CGI movie, Virtuosity. 
Did, I'm sorry. Did you just call virtuosity horrible? Yes. Virtuosity oh, is awesome. In the best way possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when you got a when you got Denzel doing Denzel, and you got uh, Russell Crowe just uh, chewing scenery as the villain Sid six point seven, my dude. Russell Crowe is great when he plays a thug. He's actually a good actor, but when he plays anyone mm-hmm. intelligent, it's so cringy and fancy. Not so good. Yeah. <laughs> I have. I have to admit, I've never seen as virtual reality. What's what's true? What's false? Paranoia. You know, a a shitty mm-hmm. cop and and a, a crazy villain and they're like all. It's basically I when after I watched it, I went. There's got to be some PKD influence here somewhere, but I couldn't find anything that said it was influenced by PKD at all. I haven't watched Virtuosity in a long time, and I think looking back on it, for me, it probably falls more into the William Gibson camp. But yeah, there's definitely some. PKD yeah, stuff I mean the uh, yeah the main villain is a uh, is a conglomerate of like 250 serial killers. Yeah, put together through this janky uh, like computer janky program. AI. Yeah, it's awesome. Virtual reality thing. Yeah, running mm-hmm. requires you to wear a full body suit to mm-hmm. get into it. It's fucking fantastic. <laughs> right, so there's that, and then on the opposite, entirely opposite end of the spectrum, when you go from wacky, terrible CGI to devs, which oh, is I haven't watched that yet. It's great. A brainy, slow. Uh, philosophical, tragic nightmare. I mean, that's a, it's it's just incredible. The show, I still think about it. I saw it, like, I finished watching it, like, five months ago. I still think about it and what it means and what it was trying to do and what it was trying to say. Um, it, basically, what it is is a a woman gets a job at a, a developer's uh, secret lab where he is trying to trying to create software that will tell uh, that's basically a time machine forward and backward. And the only reason he's building it, this is because his daughter and his wife died and he wants his daughter back. And from there it builds into this story of of uh, of corporate espionage and 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 what is real and do we have a will of our own or is everything assigned is 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 fate assigned to us and and it's it's got a, a depth you don't see on tv very often plus it's it's taking chances by not trying to not trying to entertain i guess that's the best way to put it it's not worried about entertaining it's worried about telling its story just like uh, it's the same guy that did what's his name david Alex uh, Garland. Alex Garland, who did Dave's Machina. Is that what it's yeah. yeah. And, uh, and of course, he was the secret director of Dread. Right? That was him? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he supposedly directed most of Dread. He wrote the screenplay for it. And... Oh, it's Ex Machina, right? Ex Machina. Ex Machina. He also uh, was... Um, he was a novelist first. He wrote The Beach... And mm-hmm. then he wrote uh, Danny Boyle's um, 20 Days Later, 20, um, and then um, Sunshine, which... Um, oh, Sunshine. I love that movie. Yeah, I love that movie, too. Loki, Loki, this, Sunshine. I, I think this is his, like, pet project. 
because it, it's a lot like like ex machina in the sense that there's alternate reality you don't know what's who's real who's fake what's real what's fake uh but it's just a great story now the one one detraction i have from the show is i did not like the lead actress's acting i thought she was pretty stunted and some of her her reactions were bizarre uh, other than that, I mean, if you, it, it's not that hard to get by that. But that's the only only criticism I really have of the show, which is the main thing that most people have been saying. And I, I do think that it was somewhat of a stylistic choice. I, I believe there was stylistic choice in there. But if you look at all the other actors, I mean, who are great actors like Allison Pill and um, uh, Nick Offerman, their performances are incredible, great, and yeah. they have. They're emotionless performances, but yeah. they somehow convey emotion through non-emotion. It's it's like Pinter on crack. I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, do you have a dick-like suggestion this month? I have two suggestions, neither of which are dick-like. You'll just have to eat it and be quiet, David. Um, <laughs> so my first recommendation, um, shout out to whoever in the comment section on YouTube wanted us to cover Videodrome. I agree, and um, <laughs> but uh, I re I uh, watched the 2019 remake of Cronenberg's Rabid last week, really? and I don't know if any of you have seen the original What's Cronenberg the Rabid. It's yes. good, right? Good typical. Wait, which one is that? That's uh, with the, the motorcycle that... accident. Okay, all right, all right. Um, and. It was recently remade by the Soska sisters who did American Mary, which is a, also an incredible horror film. I like the Soska sisters. They've done some good stuff. They made what I think is a true, a truly good remake where it keeps the spirit of the original, but updates it without being, you know, talking down to you or making you feel dumb or just trying to rehash everything that got that's gotten done before. All the practical effects are killer and super gnarly, and it has a pretty downbeat ending, which, as everyone should know by now, I'm, I'm a big fan of. <laughs> um, and then, do I have a? I don't know why I said two, but I can <laughs> also agree with Scott Jones, who was on the the Zapgun episode that Upload is a pretty pretty solid show. Yeah, yeah, very good show. It's flawed. It's definitely flawed, but it's it's pretty it's pretty good. I mean, consider uh, the writer of that show wrote my favorite episode of The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm already predisposed. Which Simpsons episode? Uh, Bart loses his soul. <laughs> you sold my soul for Pogs. Not only Pogs, Bart, Alf Pogs. I love that show. Yeah. <laughs> um, JP, do you have a dick-like suggestion for us this time? Well, yes. Um, this is a novel from 2019. Uh, Infinite Detail by uh, Tim Mon, uh, Morgan, however you pronounce it. <laughs> He's a British science fiction writer. And uh, this is a very interesting novel that sort of takes us between two timelines. In the first one, it's perhaps our near future. And the infinite detail of the title refers to how, you know, with uh, virtual reality enhanced experiences and real-time tracking of everything, we do literally live in a world of infinite detail. Right. Uh, when I think back to my college days, if I was interested in a new a musician that I saw on MTV or something, it might take me weeks, if not months, 
uh, to actually get more info about them. And now we have all this infinite detail at our fingertips. But so much of it is owned, operated, and in the interest of corporations whose motives are not always to our welfare, right? What? So he paints that kind of a scenario. It's 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 very much snatched from the headlines, very much five, six years hence. But then he also has a second timeline in which uh basically the plug has been pulled on the internet by some anarchists. And we're all living in a world in which everything that was online is down, everything that depended on being online, you know, like your smart homes or your internet of things. And of course, the internet itself is gone. And part of it is sort of to dramatize the extent to which our world has become one of of infinite cyber detail. And the other part is towards the very end, he starts building this hope that what was wrong with the pre-catastrophe world and by extension, our real world is the way the internet has sort of gone away from being a democratic space to a highly business controlled space. Mm-hmm. And he kind of posits that towards the very end of his novel, the people in this far, uh, slightly further future uh, of his have actually found uh, a, a sort of buried capsule that could help them start implementing internet technology again. But uh, the hope is that this time it's not going to be in control of uh, corporations. Uh, it's a very interesting book. Plot not plot is not the strongest aspect of it. Uh, what I like it more for are the character studies, the way people interact with technology, the way they make do without technology. So like any good science fiction, it leaves you with a lot more to think about than just necessarily charting out the plot. And I think, you know, it is dick-like in that uh, Philip Kiddick was very interested in how media of different kinds technology of different kinds sort of interact with and control our psyches. You know, Ubik uh, sort of is, is the ultimate uh, novel about that. So yeah, right. Tim Mon's uh, 2019 novel, Infinite Detail, is my dick-like pick. Ooh, that sounds great. Um, definitely we'll check that out. Um, I have one that I know Anthony has started reading, but probably has not finished yet. And then... Um, but they're both published by friend of the show, former guest, uh, D. Harlan Wilson. And uh, first up is his soon-to-be-released novel, and if you're on YouTube, I'm holding it up, um, Outre, which is um, uh, David Wilson's new um, kind of Ballardinian, ball- very Ballard-ish um, kind of um, stream of content. Yeah, it's a skits flow, just totally super weird, hilarious, insanity like trip through um, David's brain, which is a very interesting place to spend time. <laughs> um, this book is um, about a, it's a future where cinema and life has the walls between like cinema and fictional media and like our brains has kind of broken down and we don't know the difference between cinema and real world and uh, the main character is an actor but then there's this like weird kind of Melville Moby Dick thing I don't even entirely know how this makes sense or comes into it but um, the main thing is you're laughing and cracking up the whole time you're reading it 
and um, thinking like, what the hell is going on uh, through most of it? It's very weird, very good. Um, I always laugh when I read David's books. So um, uh, I really appreciate this one. Anthony, you started reading this one too? I have started reading it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on a trade? Is it your first time reading Wilson's fiction? Yeah, so it's uh, insane. It is an insane book, but beautifully written insanity. Yeah, beautifully written insanity. I think that's... Um, but also, uh, Professor Wilson also just um, released um, this new edition. I'm holding it up for the YouTube viewers um, with this awesome cover of Barry Maltzberg's Revelations. Um and this new edition comes with a kind of middle finger in the air um, introduction by Professor Wilson um, called Barry Maltzberg and the Gravity of Science Fiction. And basically his, the idea that he's getting at is that science fiction belongs to the 20th century and that he's basically saying that he doesn't really view science fiction um, from this century as being really worthwhile compared to the science fiction of the 20th century. It also has two afterwards, one from 1976 and one from this year by Maltzberg himself. Basically, it's kind of like, it was very network before network and um, Barry Maltzberg deals very much with this. It's about how TV kind of exploits destroying human beings for ratings and for gossip and ideas, but it's also thematically in the whole series of books that Maltzberg was kind of deconstructing this, the, um, the space program at the time. And so uh, it's a very interesting book, very out of date, but also very timely. When was it written? It was written in 1972. Okay. So, and one of the main characters that comes on this TV show is an astronaut, um, who uh, has come back from and this running theme through Maltzberg's books at the time was how full of shit the space program was and how like they're trying to make the space program out to be like these all American good goody two shoes and how they're all like sex craved psychomaniacs in Barry Maltzberg's <laughs> books and so I highly recommend people pick up this edition for no other reason than to let's Keep supporting Barry Maltzberg being back in print, an author, a greatly underrated author from the new wave. Uh, and I think it's very good and important that um, David Wilson is putting his work back out. And I want to support that. Before we we transition to uh, Counterclock World, though, um, JP, I'm going to put you on the spot again a little bit, but I think this one should be a little bit easier to riff on, which is um, what I, I, I'm interested in what. How did you discover, because you, you're very into the new wave of science fiction from the 60s, which is like a lot of our focus. And I'm wondering how, um, because we are coming to it from an American perspective, what is, how is science fiction literature translated in India? And do you read in English? And like, like how did you come to being such a big science fiction fan in India? So there is quite a substantial science fiction fandom in India and I think has been uh, part of the reason is that uh, engineering is a very popular profession here and I think uh, these especially slightly older science fiction like Asimov, Clark and so on and then 
you know, the next generation of hard SF writers like uh, Ben Bova and on to, you know, uh, the beginnings of, of cyberpunk. I think uh, this sort of stuff uh, was very much passed along uh, to, you know, these science guys in engineering colleges. I'm not from that background. I did a BA in journalism and psychology. But I think there's always been this geeky element of uh, middle-class Indian boys studying math, studying engineering, and loving science fiction. Uh, there is uh, some, there used to be quite a lot of Bengali science fiction at one point, but the Bengalis kind of have everything. Any genre you can name, they've had a, a sort of a homegrown literature of that. Hmm. Uh, Bengal and Kerala are two states in India that have very good uh, publishing industries in their own language. Uh, and people famously read books in their own language. And I suppose most of the translations into Indian languages are into Malayalam and Bengali respectively. And of course, Hindi, because it's sort of one of the leading national languages. But I would say that uh, the bulk of sci-fi fans in India read English books in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were part of the British Empire at one time, so we could kind of <laughs> still have the language. <laughs> and uh, for me, Philip K. Dick was quite a ubiquitous figure, you know, in the early 90s. Uh, things like Total Recall. I mean, if you've got Schwarzenegger in a movie and it's the 90s, everybody's going to sort of want to know everything about where that movie came from. And I was uh, fascinated uh, by the idea that, oh, there's this guy who uh, sort of writes about reality uh, being an illusion. And uh... <laughs> Well, we'll get, we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. This book was released in 1967. Hmm. David. What was happening in 1967? Well, thank you for asking, Larry. Um, That was the year of the first heart transplant, which was interesting. Uh, The first ATM was put somewhere in the world. And uh, let's see, the first Super Bowl was played. So, um, and Packers. Yeah, Packers and the Chiefs in the first... Super Bowl and the Six Day War uh, for Israel. So that's what happened in 1967. Just to give you some context, I don't think it's as quite as um, uh, anchoring to the time as as um, Elvis shaking his hips like when in those early. Oh, wasn't 67 is also the summer of love, right? Yeah, it's a little bit before that, but the Laurel, the the Torrey Canyon runs. And the uh, Monterey International Pop Fest, that big first mm-hmm. big pop fest, was 1967 as well. So, and that was kind of like the pre-Woodstock before. Mm-hmm. That. You are correct, Larry. 1967 is, in fact, the summer of love. Summer of love. <laughs> All right. All right. So I was wrong. What the fuck? Not it, David. 67, right? <laughs> um, but uh, this one has a. Um, has a interesting writing and publication history. We don't have a lot of quotes from Dick about it. He did not talk about this book very much. Well, that's a shame. It started as a short story. Um, your appointment. Well, that's interesting because he won't shut up about time out of joint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had a lot to say about time out of joint. Um, and uh, your appointment will be yesterday. Was published in August 1966. And this short story, I sent you guys a link to the PDF. Did anyone read it? I did. I read it. The uh, uh, if you read the novel, you read basically the short story. So yeah, um, 
Personally, yeah. I think the short story is better than the novel. I think it's a more compact version of the idea. I think he tries to explain it a little bit better in the short story. Right. Well, he, he introduces something in the short story that he doesn't introduce in the novel, which I, I thought was, would have been great in the novel if you had people moving forward in time and people moving backward. Mm. Um, it would yeah. have been a great dynamic, but that, that part of the short story didn't translate. Yeah, he scrapped it for the novel. Yeah. yeah. So the manuscript for the short story was received at SMLA on August 27th, 1965. So it, the short story was two years earlier and it was directly after, he wrote it directly after Unteleported Man. So he was fully not making sense with his. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was before a short story called Holy Quarrel, which I have not read. but uh, so this, and it's interesting just to think, you know, this makes me think of the fact that it's a very different world that his literary agency is handling his short stories. Cause I'm not sure that literary agencies handle short stories at all anymore. Um, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Collections. Yeah. But not. Yeah. Not individual stories. It is very similar in concept to uh, one of his short stories from 1953, you know, the year where he wrote a million short stories in 1953. The indefatigable, uh, indefatigable, I don't even know how to say it. Indefatigable, frog, which dealt with the Zeno's paradox. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I've read that story either. Um, I haven't read it. Yeah. It's, I was working my way through the chronologically collected four volumes of his short stories. Right. Uh, of course, it, it does feel like the 50s were sort of his peak productive era. I, I do remember the indefatigable frog. Yeah. And um, that... Uh, but yeah, a story any story from 1953 is is notable in the sense that because that was the year before Von Vogt talked to him at the convention and said, uh, "You never you gotta write novels, kid. You gotta write mm-hmm. novels. Short story stuff ain't working." Yeah, <laughs> that's the role you were born to play, Larry, in a Coen <laughs> Brothers movie. <laughs> um, yeah, the Barton Fink moment. Um, but. Uh, I, and I definitely think that 1953 is is a zone for the short stories where he cares so much more about the short stories because I think these later things like the short stories are almost just like outlines or working out ideas. Like, you know, he's thinking ahead of time. I'm probably going to expand this into a novel. I just need to get this short story sale or I need to get this idea out there. I don't see anything where... Um, where where his intent is there for the short story, I'm just guessing. Um, but for better the, or worse, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of the major differences between the short story and the novel is the way the government is is designed. Also, in the short story, with it's called the syndicate, and the government is much more hands-on about eradicating the inventions and the things that are going on. And that's another thing that I like better in the short story is um, the ERADs are, are, are very, def- definitely one of the more interesting parts of the novel for me. But um, 
I like that the idea is that that the government is much more involved in that. Um, not the not the ERADs as a, a separate entity, but as part of the government. Uh, yes, and um, I, I I find that that the, the the system or the syndicate or the existence of this is a strong part of the novel and some, or of the short story and something that I wish had been more a part of the novel and kind of been more dystopian. Um, it, or it had been a heavier part of the novel, but I mean, it is what it is, but I definitely, that's something that I, that I enjoyed more about the short story. Um, the novel was written in late 1965. So pretty within the same year that he submitted the short story to SMLA. And uh, we know that it was, somewhere in the time between when he finished Unteleported Man and started the Ganymede Takeover, um, the, the next book we have to look forward to. Um, and are you guys ready for the terrible original Philip K. Dick title? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And there is an article in, in, in the New Journal that, 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 that talks about... Um, uh, Imagine if we had all these novels with their original titles. <laughs> so uh, the original title for Counterclock World is The Dead Grow Young or The Dead Are Young. Wow, he really So I'm actually going to I'm I'm actually going to fight you on that because I actually like the title The Dead Grow Young. It's got a nice kind of 70s jam band aspect to it for an album title <laughs> and you know and you know what i'm here for it i'm fucking here for that title the the second one not so much but that first um, one that first um, one's fine nah um, it's a jam band title my dude all right, jam so, band suck. <laughs> I, I disagree with that too okay so anthony's gonna be the hard take jp do you disagree uh how do you feel about the title the dead grow young too literal. Counterclock world is more mysterious, more interesting. On the nose, right? It's, it's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, be right. Story. Story be this. <laughs> story be. They're both intriguing titles, but I think Counterclock world is a little more uh, mysterious. It's, it's certainly more literary. Sure. It's it, it's got a nicer sound yeah. to it. Mm. Um. Yeah. I mean. It's just he's never going to get the title right. Um, uh, he did not have uh, Don Wolheim to save him on this one. Mm. It was not published by um, by Ace, but it was published by Berkeley Books as a paperback original in February 1967. Um, Berkeley uh, being Don Wolheim's main competition, and if you uh, listen to our interview with Don Wolheim's uh, daughter, you know Betsy. Betsy Wolheim. Betsy Wolheim. Um, but if you listen to Betsy talk about it, um, this was a huge battle between Berkeley and Ace over authors. So um, most of the time, Don Wolheim won. But uh, he did, did feel Don Wolheim did feel that he was getting cherry picked a lot of times um, for these authors. So it's interesting that Counterclock World was was a Berkeley uh, book. So part of the thing is Berkeley had this deal with Del Rey, and Del Rey was was technically the line that was that w- they were having the battle with the authors. So I don't. This wasn't specifically a Del Rey title. It was specifically from the main line of Berkeley. So it may not have been part of this battle. 
but um, I believe it was. Uh, but either way, it was not. It, it's it's interesting that it was not published by Ace. It had no Don Wilhelm influence, um, and 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 that they still changed the title. <laughs> they still changed the title, um, and uh, but I think the fact that it doesn't have a Don Wilhelm influence at this point um, is notable, uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of the more literary titles of this early era were the ones that did not have the Don Wilhelm influence your time out of joints your your man in the high castle and well yeah i can totally see why don wolheim wouldn't want this one yeah Yeah. it's it's not like solar lottery it's not like there's very minimal action so yeah there's no space pirates and and betsy made clear too that um some of what don wanted from things and we know from his rejection of out of um, Martian time slip that he was more literal about how he did science fiction. And yeah. I can't see him. I, I can see Don Wolheim just looking at this concept and be, and just being like, no way, <laughs> no way. I'm not doing this one. Uh, right. After the eye in the sky Christianity thing and <clears throat> this one being all about religion and yeah. Yeah. He's probably thinking I can't sell this in middle America and I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And um, so, so I think it is very notable that it that it's not a Don Wolheim joint per se, and um, I think that's one of the things. Joint. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think it's notable for that. We don't know who edited this book, really. We um, some person at Berkeley, and unlike a lot of the other PKD books, we can see letters, notes, and ideas that came from the editors, from Don Wolheim, from Terry Carr. There's none of that for a counterclock world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we only have two quotes uh, from from PKD about counterclock world. Um, Anthony, can you hit us up with the first one, which doesn't really tell us too much. Meanwhile, my writing career creaks on. My Berkeley book, Counterclock World, just came out with a very nice cover, which shows a girl who looks exactly like Nancy. What is more, the girl in the story, Lotta, is based on Nancy. I keep wondering if by any chance Terry and or Carol Carr gave Damon Knight, the editor of Berkeley Books, a picture of Nancy. They have several which I sent them. Otherwise, it must be chalked up to sigh, I suppose. Come on, PKD, don't be silly. <laughs> so, okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, that's that Lotta is based on a, what's your face? Yeah, but all the all the women characters are based on his wives or girlfriends. Right. Yeah, but, but Lotta is such a shit character. Mm. <laughs> well, and that also just contradicts what I just said, because we now know from that quote who the editor was. It was Damon Knight. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, Damon Knight, of course, is a huge name in science fiction and long-running figure in science fiction who's also the founder of the Clarion Workshops. Um, and we we know a lot. He we know that he was one of the early champions of the Solar Lottery when it came out. That Damon Knight was was a person who, by the way, Damon Knight um, was known for his very harsh critical essays about science fiction, which are gathered in a book um, in Search of Wonder, which is a fantastic read to get an idea of because most of it are his crappy reviews of what he didn't like, um, and. So you get a lot of what Damon Knight didn't like that was happening in science fiction. So it's interesting to see that 
I actually find it hard to believe that he bought the concept of Counterclock World. Um, and I wonder if... Well, it was definitely different, I think. Yeah, that's true. But it does... And also, Counterclock World does have two or three different themes or concepts sort of nested within it, right? There is the Hobart phase, uh, but there's also um, the whole... The divided America, divided on color lines, uh, racial tension. Uh, and then the third aspect is uh, what then does the afterworld or God mean if people are coming back from the dead? So it it does manage to throw in quite a few stimulating ideas into the mix. Oh, yeah. So thematically, it's full. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very much full. It's just and, a, you know when uh, um, is it uh, the head librarian or her daughter who talks about the riots in LA and they've been going on since well uh, it's since the, the time I think you know, it's the daughter yeah since the time yeah. and and so some of it almost feels contemporary at times because of the racial tensions. Uh, that sort of thing, and and you realize some things just haven't changed since PK these days. Right. So for me, that was that was that was an interesting aspect. Yeah, when you so, hear about the, them talking, her talking about the Watts riots and everything. Yes, and you think, wow, some of these things have just never stopped happening, and same unresolved issues. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know if there's a lot of race in his other books. Uh, uh he he. He does some stuff in some of the other books. He he likes to have um, characters that are are he likes to have black characters that the black the black part of them doesn't matter. They're just characters. Hmm. So even though characters in the books mention and they they use a lot of words that Anthony hates, like Negro and and colored and things like that. Uh, for PKG, so the- just talking about a person. So not taking your bait, <laughs> but it's true. He is just talking about a person, even with the uh, the the poorly chosen words and everything, in a lot of other novels. Well, yes, but but here I think I think racial tensions are sort of on his mind. They're very central. Yeah, very central. Yeah, and we'll get more into the um, yeah into that as it goes on. Anthony, the other quote. Now, this is interesting because. In the exogenous, uh, PKD does talk very heavily about his more theological novels. However, there's only one mention. You mean the exegesis, right? The exegesis, yeah. And um, in the exegesis, he he does talk about these more theological novels at greater length. However, Counterclock World only gets one little bit. And Hmm. so we have that quote. Um, Anthony, can you hit us with that one? Time is about to end. Lineal time as a factor of life. It won't reverse, as in counterclock world, but our present will dissolve as all the accretions of the last 3,500 years will vanish, as if dreamlike they never took place. And that's it. That's Dick on counterclock world, I guess. <laughs> that's all we know. Um, yeah, he didn't talk much about this book, and it's hard to say if he had... He did, obviously didn't have a lot of deep thoughts about it. He Like, like Anthony said, Time Out of Joints, a book he likes to talk about. Man in the High Castle is a book. High in the Sky, he likes to talk about. Three Stigmata. I would say most likely this is an unfulfilled uh, idea. 
even even though he wrote the novel, I, I, he probably feels like he didn't successfully convey what he wanted to. So why talk about it? Yeah, um, I I feel like this concept is one, and we'll get more into it too. Like one of the reasons why this is hard for me is as a as a kind of more rationally minded science fiction reader, I don't like the surreal stuff as much. I'm not a fully hard sci-fi reader, but I need things to make a little bit of sense. And I know Kim Stanley Robinson, when we get to his quotes about the book later, he had a problem with this because the way Kim Stanley Robinson talked about it is he said, he explained it as biological time is going backwards, right? But that's not really true because you also have the process of the food and you have the, the putting the whiskers back on and those kinds of things, which doesn't, there's no consistency to this idea. Yeah, the concept is not is not carried out completely in any way. Yeah. Well, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but do they give any indication, or maybe it all just kind of ties in together in the bigger picture, but do they give any indication or reasoning as to why their greetings are reversed? Just to be cute, I guess? I think it's just to be cute. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's no other... There's no other logical reason for it yeah, because because time is not subjectively flowing backwards for them yeah it's just certain yeah. processes uh, like sogum ingestion and subsequent discord yeah that that seem to be reversed yeah and of course uh, one funny little touch was that people say food when they mean to say shit as a or curse food. word i yeah. mean oh, it's food. either way. yeah yeah, yeah. It, That's what it, I'm going to do now it, at, at work. Just, oh, food. <laughs> That's my new thing. Right. So it's not very rigorously played out, but I think he sort of picked and chosen the aspects of time reversing that interested him and yeah. just sort of waved a magic wand at the other ones. He uh, really did. He, yeah. he really did wave a magic wand. <laughs> right. Like, he doesn't go in depth about any any aspect. Right, because I mean, how are you going to have it? It it becomes a completely impossible, intelligible mess to write about if you like really have everything going backwards. If words are going backwards, if everything's going. I sure, mean, but we the the wand waving isn't something new to to Dick. It, he no. does it in a lot of books. He that yeah. Dick is very much a sci-fi writer, but he's very much also a fantasy writer. Yeah. And and I think that we've seen that come up many times by this point where we're not going to get a hard sci-fi description but I feel or like anything. This one is much fine with on, me. on display. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Just I, think, I think his interest was creating situations which were like, uh, you know, uh, like experimental situations for his philosophical ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. but, but as you said, that's much more on display here. It's... Mm -hmm. uh, I think he just really wanted to explore what happens if people come back from the afterlife experience. Although right. it takes time for him yeah, to get and, around and to that. All this around that that yeah. one idea of people rising from the dead and and experiencing life in reverse. And right. I don't think I don't know how much time moving forwards or backwards really matters overall to the greater theme that he's trying to get. The, the thing about it is the theological idea that the Anarch Peak, all these people are wanting Anarch Peak to tell them like, hey, this is what the afterlife's like. And all these different things, the race relations, the how society works and all these things are kind of hinging on this 
theological concept. And that's what's most important in counterclock world. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why ultimately it's not going to be one of, one of my favorites. But anyways. Um, well, I have many reasons it's not my favorite. <laughs> many. Uh, but we're, we, we, we almost skipped a part. Hmm. We almost skipped a very important part. Because we, we're already talking about the book. But what we need... Yeah, let's talk about the book. We need the story breakdown. Story. Oh, oh, that's right. Story breakdown. All right. What? What? The story what? breakdown. Larry, hit us up. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. All right, I have notes for you YouTubers. There's the notes. They're real. They're real. They're on paper. All right. All right. This is a uh, my book report on PKD's God Book, which is which is called uh, Counterclock World. And uh, I have notes, so it, it's not all off the cuff. I plan jokes. Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Counterclock World by Philip K. Dick. Chapter one. Uh, so there's a there's a dipshit cop hanging out in a cemetery, and he sees a, a or he hears an old woman yelling from the ground, and and immediately I was like, whoa, dead people are coming up from the grave, and I know this is pre-zombies, so this shit's getting wild, and uh, I think immediately, what a great chapter. Anthony is gonna love this shit. He's gonna say, wow. This is not some dude counting onions. This is a guy seeing a woman coming out of the grave. Okay. He was, he was peeling potatoes, and I oh, still would yeah. argue that that is one of the most boring cold opens for a book I've ever read. But anyway, go on. So, so then we uh, move on the same chapter. We, we go to uh, our protagonist, because I can't call him a hero. I can't. I, I, I can't. I just won't. I can't. Uh, <laughs> To Sebastian Hermes and and his wife uh, Lotta, and they're at home. They get this call from this cop, and he's like, "Hey, I got a dead riser, a debtor coming out. You want to come down, make some cash, make some cash, get some get some quatloos." And uh, so this is the uh, the uh, the Rick and Morty part where he calls everyone like it's a heist movie. And he's just like, hey, we got a, we got one. And everyone's like, you son of a bitch, I'm in. And they, uh, they plan to go, they go, and they, they get the body out of there. And while they're getting the body out of there, they're like, uh, a couple of them, the priest, the priest and Seabass are like, I got a feeling. I got a feeling that this weird little tiny cemetery has some secrets. And there's something big happening here. <laughs> so then we uh, then we cut to the to uh, the short story, and we meet a, a character who is, whose name has changed from the short story to Appleford because Appleford is a much more in charge kind of name. <laughs> and then so uh, Appleford wakes up. He says goodbye to some woman on the phone. He he. Uh, he does his his butt smoking, and uh, 
and he. It, <laughs> this is the only time we actually see someone put away the fresh food that they puked up. So he throws up his food and he puts it away in the cabinets, which. At that point, I was like, this is some goofy-ass shit going on here. What's, what's happening? Uh, I still didn't understand the, the butt smoking, the sogum, all that stuff. And so, uh, so that happens. But he sounds smart. He's like, I've got plans. I've got ideas. And then we go back to the graveyard, and the guys are like, all right, so there's the, this dude who has this ornate grave, we're pretty sure it's him that's going to be born next. His name is the is uh, Tim? Timothy Peak? Anarchy. What? Timothy Peak. Anarchy. Timothy Peak. Thomas, Thomas Peak. Oh, sorry. Thomas Peak. Thank you. And, and so he's an important guy in this uh, newfangled religion called the Udai, or the Udi, or the UD, however you want to pronounce it, uh, which is an odd name because when I looked up Udi or Udai, whatever, it's a Baltic Christian people, Ooh. which doesn't doesn't jibe with it being a mostly uh, black religion in this in this timeline. Who, because of the Anarch Peak, this guy who's about to come back to life, uh, they now have their own territory. They've broken up the United States into three parts. We're not sure what the other part is. Is it the? I don't. I don't know if it's mentioned in the book. The, I assume it's the Eastern United States. But there is the. Um, what is it called, Anthony? The the free. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I don't have it in my notes. The FPS or and FNM. Free Negro Municipality, yeah, uh, which we assume is Colorado because it's always Colorado with uh, with Philip K. Dick, <laughs> and the, and then the Western United States where our story takes place. It says here on page ninety one that they was divided into three pieces, four if you count Hawaii and Alaska that have right. been nations. Yeah, but they're they're not named. At, even at that point, right? No, no, it doesn't name the 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 the, the other parts. No, no, there, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of ambiguous when yeah. it comes to the grander scale of things. <laughs> there's a lot that's ambig- ambiguous throughout the whole novel for no reason. Anyway, so uh, uh, so we've met everyone. They're like, all right, we got to figure out what's going on with this body. We got to get this Anarch Peak. Somehow we're going to be rich. We're going to get mad money. And I wrote notes that don't make even sense to me. So, <laughs> so for some what? reason, what? Sebastian's wife is sent to the library. Okay. Uh, no, I, uh, I've got that. I've got that. <laughs> so I, I have called it Library One hmm. because there's basically three major library scenes. So Library One is the wife. Action packed goes- this book. <laughs> Yeah, she is. She is scared shitless of the library, and we're not ever told really why she's scared of a library. I mean, granted, it's about eradicating all knowledge. That is, the library in this world is dedicated to the destruction of all knowledge. That is their goal. So, as as 
as that knowledge has been discovered going backwards, it has to... It, it has to be destroyed. Yeah. It, yeah, that's... It's a very convoluted thing, mm. but it, it makes sense in, in inside the novel. So she's super shy. She's basically like an 11-year-old girl would be nowadays, where she's coy, shy, like, oh, I can't talk to people. And mm. she's like that. The this the the George Michael from Arrested Development. Oh my God! I can't believe <laughs> I can't believe I'm here and people are talking to me, and she's fucking annoying as shit. Uh, yeah, but I, was, I remember thinking she, that you know I he's mean, made her into such a wet blanket. She's, you don't. I, it can be endearing. Just being capable of either writing a completely passive woman or a femme fatale. Or yeah. some sort of villainous woman whose evilness and villainousness seems to boil down to the fact that she has her own motivations. Right. Like, like the yeah, police. Who is oftentimes, who is oftentimes vaguely of ethnic. ethnic. Yes, that also. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right. I don't think these women characters are a highlight anywhere, but least of all here. Anywhere. Yeah. But mm-hmm. So uh, she's shy. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know where to go. And Tinbane sees her. This is our, our police friend. friend. Our police friend sees her and he's like, wow, she's cute. I'm now in love with her. Because cute means love. I don't know anything about love. <laughs> so, yeah, I found that, I found that this so... Is a, this is a novel of, of not knowing what love is or what it, what it can be. Well, and, and he can't make up his fucking mind at all. Oh, that's in here too. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm sort of wondering if he's trying to depict that Tinbane and Lotta are regressing mentally because of the Hobart phase. I, I would, I would oh. like to think so, but even that's actually interesting. Then there's, there's some. But it doesn't hold up. Yeah. Mm. It would be really clever if that was what he was doing. There, there has to be some connection, right? Mm-hmm. It can't just be. This he doesn't even do the love it uh, love at first sight thing. It's like mm. I I now care about you, and then when and then when he saves her, she's like I'm in love with you now for some reason because you saved me. Well, and it's weird because he's so blasé about his marriage, right? And and it it kind of boils down to he's blasé about it, but now he feels regretful for sleeping with this person, but then he he's not. He 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 doesn't care. Let's just be honest about it. Everyone in this novel is confused about love, or at least our main characters have no idea what they're doing. Now, yeah. I, I haven't so, I haven't looked at Divorcepedia um, to see exactly where we are, but I'm pretty certain that we were in the he and Anne were on the skids, and he already was crushing on Nancy, but had not left for her at this time, and. If he wasn't, it sure seems like it from reading this book. <laughs> well, then, uh, he got divorced from Anne in in sixty four. Oh, so he would have just so, yeah. yeah, I think he was with Nancy at this point. But and, I think and, he was having insecurities about about being with this this woman he didn't really trust because Anne had given him support in a lot of ways, and this new right. woman was like. I just love you because you're you're you. 
And he's I, like, I well, just, well, just, just so Jay knows, we do this Dick's Divorcepedia because so many of these books seem to be him trying to work through his relationship oh, yeah. issues. Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely feels that way. And it feels quite self-serving. <laughs> the way he yeah. does it. I, I often find that with PKD, the way he writes about women has a lot to do with what was going on in his life at the time. Yeah. And it doesn't reflect the best on him here especially. All right. So let me so, let me get through this thing. All right. So, so next we we meet the teams. I like to call this meet the teams because it reminds me of one of those late nineties montages. Yeah, yeah. Two thousand movies that are like Tarantino movies. But like locked stock and and two smoking barrels, and uh, what what, what are we smoking aces, Ocean's Eleven, those kinds of uh, movies where it's like, all right, all these all these different groups are going for the same thing, and it's going to end in some big shootout or something like that. So we meet all the teams. We meet the Italians. We meet the librarians, the era uh, er, eradicators. The cops have their own contingency. The Udidi, if you want to, uh, I'm just going to say Udidi. Uh, they have their own contingent of, of people going for the Anarch Peak. Everyone's goal is to get to the Anarch Peak. Hmm. And, and uh, in my mind, I was thinking, all right, so we're going to this, this we're going to build all these groups to this crescendo but no, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the library and, uh, <laughs> and then Lada is going to have to talk to Mavis, the evil librarian, and be stuck there. And then Tinbane is going to go, well, I don't love my wife, but I'm now in love with this girl, so I'm going to save her. Oh, but, but even before he does that, I just got to give you this one, the best... Joey Tribbiani line from this novel is is when uh, Tim Bain's trying to convince uh, he he wants to blackmail Lada into loving him, and so he's like, you know, I got all this dirt on you that I could use, but I'm not gonna. Um, so so and I quote, could you spread any of your love in my direction? <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> the creepiest, the creepiest way to, and she and she basically is like, "Ew, no, <laughs> I'm gonna leave." So his his past does not work at that at that time. But then he saves her in this. Uh, he saves her from from the library, and she immediately says, "I'm now in love with you. I'm leaving my husband for you because you saved me and he didn't. Because I'm not shallow in any way." Uh, so then there's what next comes the 50 pages of capitulation, which is like 50 shades of gray, but this is the 50, it's actually more like a hundred, but I call it the 50 pages of capitulation because, uh, basically what Sebastian does is through this whole section say, this is the way things have to be. And then someone says, no, we, we want to do it differently. No, this is the way it has to be. And then they say, no, can we do it different? And he's like, we have to do it your way. And he says that constantly to everyone. He makes a deal with the, the, 
the librarians. He makes a deal with the Uditi. He makes a deal with the Italians. He makes a deal with, um, uh, what's her name, Ann Fisher. He makes a deal with everyone. But it's all the same deal. And he's just lost. Like, uh, at one point, he's, at, right after Lada leaves him, he says to his buddies, we got to get the Anarch Peak out of here. And, and his buddies are like, all right, we'll take him here. We'll do this thing. And he's like, you do it. I don't want to be involved. And he's just like totally weak, totally shallow, doesn't, doesn't care at all. So we move on to the Library 3. Other stuff happens. No one cares. Uh, this is when, when Sebastian is supposed to have his big hero moment. So Sebastian is is assigned by the Italians and by, um, what's his name? Carl Gantrix, who is working for Raymond Roberts, the leader of the UDI. And Carl Gantrix is a robot. A robot. A robot. Uh, so he, he is... He, Carl he is, Jr. He is given the, the tools to go into the library and save the Anarch Peak. So... He is he is given a, a an LSD grenade, antidote for LSD, and a time shift shot. So he takes the time shift shot where he goes full uh, Star Trek, where he's moving fast and everyone is basically frozen in position. Goes up to the Anarch Peak and immediately says, "Nah." I'm going to save my stupid wife that doesn't even love me anymore. And uh, doesn't even do that. Goes to to Ann Fisher, who he's... Oh, God. I should mention this. So, so when he first meets Ann Fisher, the evil daughter of the librarian, uh, she says, you know, I've got this uh, kid inside me that's growing backwards. All I need is for some dude to nail me and I can become unpregnant. And he's like, fuck yeah, we'll do that, even though I'm married. And uh, I want my wife back. I don't want my wife back, but I have to do this because it's the right thing to do. But it's wrong, but I'm going to do it because no one's confused at all here. <laughs> all right. So, so yeah, he, the whole thing of it could be anybody. Like, yeah. it's weird to me. Anybody could nail this girl. It doesn't have to be the father. Nope. Mm. You know, it can just be any yeah. person. Any, any sperm will do because it's sucked back into him. Because you're going to, it doesn't, you're going to go back into some random dude. It doesn't no. matter. Orgasms in this world must be really strange. <laughs> it's all going backwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it goes backwards and then it spews out your mouth, Larry. Come on. That's <laughs> how we work in this world. <laughs> oh, boy. anyway so he nails this girl and then he's like oh shit you're a femme fatale you're evil Mm. and she's like yeah I'm fucking evil but didn't we do it and it was awesome and he's like yeah it was awesome Oh, and and the best part about that is later the anarch peak says you're totally in love with that girl And, and then he's like well, I guess I'm in love with her because the Anarch Peak said I was. So I guess that's the way it is because he said it. 
anyway, so the library three. Uh, he's given all the tools. He goes in. Uh, he meets up with Anne, the girl he nailed, and she's like, oh, you, yeah, we'll give you your wife. You leave the Anarch Peak here. Everything will be fine. And he says, yeah, sure, that's what I want. So he takes his wife. He leaves. He meets with uh, Roberts. Roberts really digs into him in the most uh, passive-aggressive way possible. He's like, no, no, you, you could have been a great man. You could have saved the world. But no, you chose to be a dick. That's cool. That's cool. We don't, we don't mind. You can be a dick if you want to. I mean, it's up to you. Whatever. Uh, so then these commandos from the Udi come to his house. And and they say, uh, give us information. We're going to kill you eventually. But give us information first. And he is, and Seabass is so broken, so, so down in the dumps. He's like, I wish I could just die. Fine. Whatever you want to know, I'll tell you. Can I leave and go to Mars for some reason with my shitty wife? And then we can be unhappy up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be great. And they're like, no, no, uh, give us the information. Stay here. We'll be back with a grenade to blow you up. So they have this, now we get to the section I call bad plans. And this is, I'm going to, I'm just going to read bad plans. All right. Now let's start with a, oh, oh, one other thing I have to mention before I go into bad plans is that this is another occasion where PKD writes a character that is just a total piece of shit. <laughs> and then somewhere along the line during the story, the character succeeds because they're a piece of shit. So in this one, the he's like, oh, the Anarch Peak says, oh, no, if you would have tried to save me, there was a bomb under my ass. And we both would have died. So thank God. Thank God you are not a good person. Right. Because if you were a good person, where would we be now? Anyway. So, so all right. So, so bad plan number one. Use the femme fatale. That's the, uh, that's the commando's idea. We'll use the femme fatale. We'll get in. We'll get the Anarch Peak. We'll get into the library. We'll get the Anarch Peak. We'll get out. Everything will be cool. Bad plan number two, save the femme fatale. That's where Seabass is like, oh, wait, if I save the femme fatale, she'll do cool stuff. And then I can go to Mars with my shitty wife. Bad plan number three, blow up the library with nuclear bombs. <laughs> this is the commando's other plan. <laughs> if, we, if we can't get inside to save the Anarch Peak, we will nuke it. Nuke the library. Yeah. That's thing. Because, because they've probably already moved in somewhere else or yeah. already killed them anyway. <laughs> so this is gonna be a gesture, a useless gesture, but hey, at least we'll look bad doing it. <laughs> so bad plan number four I already mentioned, which is I throw a bomb into the dude's apartment, but don't leave quickly. <laughs> So what happens is this commando comes, tosses a bomb into the apartment, into the conapt, 
to blow up sea bass and and Lada, but he it just stands there apparently, and he's like, ha, ha, ha. These <laughs> bitches are gonna blow up. Do I hear an explosion yet? No. So Seabass opens the door and just puts the the assassin right on top of the bomb. He's like, "You're now go- you're doing that thing that they did in Nam, where they just jump on the grenade. You're my jump on the grenade guy." And, uh, and the commando blows up. Oh, Lada dies, but really, did we care? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then after after Lada blows up, he goes. Uh, he's all fucked up. Seabass is all fucked up. He, there's some shit that happens with hospitals, and and then he wanders to the graveyard from the beginning, and he hears all the voices. So maybe he's insane, but maybe time is sped up, and reverse time is sped up, and everyone is coming back to life. We don't know. Then his his buddy, who we haven't seen since like page forty. Uh, comes and in much more interesting. Yeah, and it's much more interesting. Comes and says, "You got to go to the hospital." And then it ends, and no one cares. And fuck this book. The end. Ah, uh, so tell us how you really feel, there, Larry. Um, I uh, look. Here is here is what I wrote down after I read this book. This is a goofy uneven, close to brilliant mess. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the individual themes, get more into how things work. We've done a little bit of this already. Um, so early in the book, we... Someone ha- please explain to me via a nice flow chart how Sogum works. Go okay. ahead, David. I'll wait. <laughs> I can do it, but I'll let David do it. Um, Sogum is pre-food shit. I think that you smoke into your body and it becomes food, right? No, David, I, I feel like you, you are oh, missing body. a very specific part. You smoke it up the butt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a reverse enema. Yeah, yeah, exactly like a reverse I, enema. I, I really think that he uh, he just didn't want people shoving poop up their butt. <laughs> I think that's why he introduced this. The, the smoke. smoke. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's funny, too, because at first, like, you can read past it a couple times where you're just like, okay. In that, in that first chapter where he's like, he leaned to the edge of the chair so he could fit the sogum up his butt. <laughs> right. And the first time he talks about a sogum cafe or whatever, you're just kind of like, oh, whatever. And then you're like, you have to kind of double take and go back and be like, are they sticking, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you as the reader are walking by and you're like, oh, hey, it's Sogum Cafe, what? And then you have some go, wait a goddamn minute. And then you go back and you're like, hey, he's smoking that with your butt. <laughs> yeah. I, I struggled figuring that out, guys. Full disclosure. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I did too. It wasn't until we talked that I was like, oh, I got to look this up. I got to figure yeah. it out. I tried to look in the dictionary. There's no sogum. Uh, I, I looked. <laughs> yeah, no, dictionary.com was like, bro, that's a made-up word. I found a, uh, I, I found a review that uh, said, so, so Dick introduces this thing called sogum, which is some kind of poop. <laughs> <laughs> some kind. This is in, a, in an actual review of the book. 
Patrick is some kind of poop. Uh, New York Times review. <laughs> and from there, I was like, okay, so I know the I know that they puke instead of eat. So basically, oh, what they're doing is smoking bongs up their ass and then reverse digesting food. I mean, I hope it's not like the width of a bong. Like maybe that seems wildly uncomfortable. Maybe like a nice hookah pipe. It depends on who you are. I mean, that's also fair. I'm just saying for me, I'm a dainty. I'm not going to kink shame. Yes. I can see David turning red now. (laughs) No, it's okay. Um, I do like the, I think some of the details on our chapter two, where he really gets into it. Um, that's where he first switches on the sogum pipe. It says very modern. He accepted a good masculine bundle. Very modern. No, it, it, he actually in the first chapter, our, he's reading our, the sports section. While Sebastian, Sebastian does use the sogum in the first chapter. Yeah, seriously on the edge of his bed. Yeah. Yeah, so it's page 17 where the program is first explained. He's reading the sports page, which... Oh, I- my God, David. It's not where it's first explained. That's where it's second explained. Okay, second explained. But this is... I, I'm also wondering how sports works in this world. If, like, you know, everyone's trying to... Things in reverse. Yeah, they have to start at the... Like, they already know who won, and they have to get back to the point where no one's where everyone's tied at zero. And I remain just as interested in sports. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he lays, out, he lays out the dishes and all that. And and so it's also the same scene where he pa- he takes out the packet of whiskers, the second scene. I don't mm-hmm. understand the whiskers. Yeah, so you buy the whiskers. Y- you have so to... They, do they grow back into your face? I think so, so. If you apply them with glue, do they then become and then they go back part of you and then suck into your face? Yeah. So apparently you would want to put the whiskers back on. You wouldn't just deal with the fact that you don't have it. You 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 have to do this process. This is part of the thing that makes this book so ridiculous. Convoluted. Um, yeah, and um but then the ERADs are mentioned right after that. So it gets into the more interesting things. What I think is, I think he's trying to write these parts to be funny, but they just end up being distracting for me from, from the idea. No, I, uh, I tried to read them as funny, like the cigarettes being smoked backwards. Like you, you, you basically remove smoke from the air by, by smoking a cigarette backwards. Right. And putting it back in the back, which, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit clever, but it, it's not... It doesn't have the same humorous effect that a lot of his humor does. You know, it doesn't it doesn't work. And I think I think if Ballard had written this book, he wouldn't have worried about like the nitty gritties, the ins and outs. He would have just let it. Yeah, it would have just been like you know. But I don't know that Ballard would have written this book. But my first thought was that. My first thought was to try and think about other writers and how they would handle this like concept. And I, cause I think Dick, we, you know, we've talked many times in this podcast that his humor is underrated, but in this regard, I think he's trying too hard. Yeah. Um, with the Sogum pipes and the whiskers and the, you know, 
it's just it's all and the the cutesy goodbyes you know mm. hellos and all that i just it doesn't work for me it's one of the things that makes this book just not work for me is that he's no, it's, it's really shallow surface sort of ideas when he's trying to convey like the depth of humanity the what's what what is in the afterlife and then he says we say goodbye when we say hello mm. it just doesn't it doesn't match no yeah, and if you did more of the blending where there's some people going forward and some people going back, I think you could have some really horrifying moments where somebody suddenly starts going backwards, like in the middle of something, and how horrifying and terrifying that would be, like how some people are, you know, people with seizure disorders who are are worried that at any time, like they're worried about driving because at any time they could suddenly have a seizure. Yeah. Yeah, and and if you could have a situation where people could just suddenly like start going backwards in time, that could be really terrifying. And well, I, and that's that's one of the things about this book that it misses is that all it, it doesn't do any of this interesting stuff. We never get any of the POV from the Anarch Peaks point of view of him coming back to crazy. life, which would have been much more interesting than yeah. just watching Joseph or was it Joseph Tinbane get murdered by the kids from the Brood in a hotel? Albeit cool, but. Tim Bain died. I, do like, I do like that he's like, hey, kids, put away those weapons. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, then he and, then they, and then they obliterate him with laser guns. Yeah. yeah. I did like that Tim Bain died because I didn't... God, I hated that guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But... Uh, there's, there's a fascinating novel by Martin Amos called Time's Arrow, which is a much I, better... I, thing. I read about that one. Yeah. I want to read that one. Yeah, I've read that. It's a much better attempt at trying to tell a life story in reverse. Yeah. He chooses a German who uh, participated in the Holocaust yeah. and then fled to Argentina and lived the rest of his life anonymously. So you begin with this immensely old man being revived on a hospital bed, and then his entire life is presented in reverse. It's done very skillfully. Yeah. Every single implication from murder to pooping is actually thought through and presented. <laughs> yeah, I want to read, I, I definitely want to read that one. Yeah, because this done better more than ever. But, but uh, when I was, I, I looked up reversed, uh, reversed realities when I was mm-hmm. researching this book. And that, really, there was a lot of stuff, but that book was the only one that really impressed me that it might be, good enough to to look into there's a lot of interesting things happening in that book yeah i mean the movie irreversible is fantastic hmm. but uh, very different in tone <laughs> it's very different in tone but it, it is the but it is very well done yes i agree reverse but yeah so so one of the things that we didn't talk about is the term oldborn which um so is that to me, that term kind of confused things because it was like, it's kind of the idea that they're being born that way versus that they've already been alive and they're coming and they're the dead coming back. So hmm. I thought that term was a little confusing. I liked old born. Um, I, I just a... like it. I'm just saying it confused me a little bit. But okay. on page nine, um, those who were presently being old born had been the last to die. Final mortalities before June of 86 
But according to Alex Hobart, the reversal of time would continue to move backwards, continually sweeping out at a greater span earlier and still earlier deaths would be reversed. And in 2000 years from now, Paul himself would sleep as he himself had put it. Um, so it's this, this idea that it starts small and it's expanding, but there's a, a mention later on about going to Mars because it's Philip K. Dick novels. So someone's going to want to go to Mars. And, um, but, but the Hobart, phase only is happening on earth it has mm. nothing to do with mars it's not happening there and so it gets into the theological issues of is this something that's happening to earth specifically well isn't it in the short story where he talks about it being a man-made sort of uh, uh process right and it's more just discovered it has to do with this new goal or whatever it is that yeah, and, are, uh, that that character is supposed to be uh, eradicating. Yeah, um, I believe in the in the short story, it's it's something handmade or an accident or something, mm -hmm. and in the novel, it's more left up to interpretation. Uh, yeah. um, and it says here that this is a process. That, it also says on page ten that it's a process that happens every couple million years. So it's this idea that there's a cycle going on. Uh, it's one line, and it's almost a throwaway, but I did highlight it because I did notice the whole thing about it happening every few billion years. So he's kind of in this idea that, that it's a cycle, and I think he's trying to say something about life. Yeah, but he lets it go right there. It's just like uh, when Tinbang gets upset about being told he's aging backwards. He like yeah. gets... He gets irate and yells at whatever character he's talking to, but it never comes up again. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's pretty common to PKD is to, like, early on introduce ideas and then drop them. Yeah. I had a very strong sense of that in this book. Yeah. Yeah. That by the end, he was writing a slightly different book from the one he was writing in the beginning. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's... That's why I, I, I talked about it like it was a heist book or it was a, you know, it was going to end in a shoot 'em up with all these, these different groups, but. Some of it fizzles out and yeah. And like you said, all the bad plans, mm -hmm. they just sort of cancel each other out. So I think what we're given to believe is that Anarch Peak's revelations about the afterlife are sort of the core of the book. Yeah. And even before Anarch Peak is revived, Sebastian talks a little bit about his afterlife, though he finds it very difficult to remember it. And he talks about a voice, which I assume is meant to be the voice of God. And it's so huge and he is so small. Mm -hmm. And later on, just before he warns Anne that, hey, uh, the UD people are coming to kill you, uh, they have this quick... <laughs> theological exchange which he says oh this is all just Plato and Plotinus and uh, Spinoza regurgitated all over again. Right. <laughs> so I think the revelation that he's trying to build all this around is that there is an immortal soul and we're all kind of one at some level and this sure, was man. supposed to be confirmed by the Anarch Peak coming back and telling it to his people. 
But like but, Anthony says, we never get to see that. We never get to we see. We never get to see that. It's thwarted. It's obviously the library doesn't want that to happen, though I'm not sure why. Except that they're determined to be the chief power of yeah. the world at that point in time. So but I, I, I like the philosophy of, you know, breaking down reality. I mean, a lot of religions do this, like Buddhism, Taoism, mm-hmm. uh, transcendentalism. There's a lot of religions that, or, or sects or philosophies that say, you know, everything around us, everything that we care about, doesn't matter because it all comes down to this little nugget of of what we are this this soul you know and i liked i like that aspect but he never expands on it he never gets to it on page 141 of the mariner edition um the robot um carl jr which we can talk more about in a bit the robot says the real issue is spiritual. We must determine and agree on the precise moment at which the soul enters the corpse in the ground. It is the moment when, is it the moment when it is dug up, when its voice is heard from below asking for aid, when the first heartbeat is recorded, when all brain tissue has formed, in the opinion of the UD, the, the soul enters the corpse when there is a total, when there is total tissue regeneration. And so I think, um, and the fact that the Anarch was illegally dug up brings up mm-hmm. these issues. Mm-hmm. Is it, it's you know it's uncomfortable because of the way the debate in the American public has gone over of, uh, when life begins and doesn't begin. Sure, but I think that these are some of the uncomfortable things that are going on in this novel when you're talking about like what the issue of the soul is, which is really what it comes down to. And then I think it becomes an interesting thing because. And this comes down to James Peake's life being cut short and not being able to give Dick the answers that he wanted. Mm. Anarch Peake is brought back, but he doesn't have the answers, you know, like. But he does. He might have the answers. Well, yes, but we're we're not. They're not. Yeah, Yeah, we're not going to listen to them because we're too busy infighting about who controls the answers. Right. So the, another thing that's weird about and some synergy with other PKD material is the is let's talk for a little bit about the free Negro municipality. Um, so JP brought it up in the sense that it was foreseeing a lot of this that was going on. I thought it was interesting that this book quoted Malcolm X at one point mm-hmm. or quoted the existence of Malcolm. No, more than once. Yes. More than once. Um, I'm not calling him modern Malcolm X. Remember reading about him. He preached violence and got violence in return, which is kind of reductive <laughs> way of talking about Malcolm X. But yeah, that's, I, 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 I wasn't really happy very quickly from that passage. Yeah. Um, so, but we've got that going on. But then with the free, one thing that's interesting about the free Negro municipality is that in season four of Man the High Castle, that basically happens. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and I wondered how much of that was people being kind of. I don't. I don't know if that was an accident or whatever. But um, the black radicals become like a huge part of season four of Man in the High Castle. It's one of the things that actually, in my opinion, I would assume an intent there, not not an accident. 
Right. And and so what happens in Man in the High Castle season four, and I don't think this is a big spoiler because it happens early in the season, is that Fred Hampton and the Panthers become like revolutionaries fighting against the Japanese. And <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to go into, I guess I kind of gave away the fact that they, they basically are able to kick the Japanese out towards the end of, of season four. And the, oh, re- wow. and the reason why I think that that's really interesting, and that's partially because the, the Chinese are overtaxed with their war in China, right? Which, which makes sense in this alternate history. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this free, free Negro municipality is, is that um, I think Dick is looking at this idea that, that the, the black people of this future are, are going are gonna to be over it, right? <laughs> that they're going to want their own system, that, that, that they're, they're going to want their civil rights and they're, they're, they're not going to you know, want to be a part about, of that. And that's one of the things that's so sad <laughs> about what we're dealing with societally right now is that we're still dealing with the issues of the racist police and the systematic racist police force, and we're still dealing with that. And I think Dick was looking at this idea that that uh, with this free Negro municipality is that 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 these black radicals are going to have their revolution at some point. And sure. yet, yet their money is is worthless. It, it, outside of their territory. Outside of their territory. Which right. I, I found kind of an interesting side note. Right. Is that, is that where, you know, it, there's this support for a black society, uh, a black rights, all that, all that, yet it's still outside of that area means nothing. Right. And yeah, and, and there's a, there's a tension um, because in the later season of Man in the High Castle, the, Nazi Germany is still controlling the East Coast, and all of a sudden there's like these black radicals running a communist country on the West Coast of the United States. <laughs> and, you know, like, and the idea of it is at first, because like the Nazi, some of the Nazis are like, well, should we just ignore them or do we deal with them? <laughs> right? right. And I, I think that uh, what Dick's doing here is, is, and he mentions it because he has like the NRP. You mentioned this too, JP, with the the Watts riots and the mention of the gatherings at Dodger Stadium for 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 NRP. That there's so many interesting ideas on the edge here about like what this culture is. These are things that I liked about the novel. These are elements and little fun things that I wish could be expanded and. Um, Unfortunately for me, the problem is, is, is the whole thing of just the concept just not working. Um, you know, it's like, I think you've got a really nice car with no engine. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and I think PKD is like pushing it down the road, but it's not, it's not humming. And that, and, and, and to me that, that's the problem with this idea is, is like, yeah, that's a really cool concept. And, and yes, there's LSD grenades, which is fun and cool. And there are cool societal like world building moments. I like the fact that um, on page uh, three, there's a mention 
The firm, of course, there's small business. Like you're talking about it as a heist, but I see it as Dick always has like a small business struggling to survive, right? And so here the firm occupied a small wooden rented building which had survived World War III and even portions of World War IV. <laughs> I like that World War III and IV have happened and we don't really know much about it. I like the little details there. There's all kinds of fun stuff there. It's meaningless because there, there is no difference in society because of the wars. Right. I mean, the, the, the U.S. has splintered into four, uh, four nations at minimum. Yeah, so that is the Presumably has something to do with these uh, third and fourth yeah, world wars. No, but it, it's clearly blamed on the uh, the Udi, Udi religion. Right, right. So I'm not sure if the, the wars were a factor. They might have been, but we're not told that. Um, no. I believe it's the it's part of that, and then the race riots, and it's on page 90 and 91 of the Mariner edition. Um, how pandering to the paroles as he he'll try to do will bring about more riots, more civil disobedience, not only in the free Negro municipality, but here among Negroes and the pro and the white pro Negroes on the West coast. Don't forget Watson Watts and Oakland and Detroit. Don't forget what you learned in school. I think that the, the riots were a huge part of it. Hmm. And it's funny that he's saying, don't forget what you learned in school. And they're talking to an ERAD who's basically like about to obliterate knowledge. And he's like, don't forget what you learned in school, but let's destroy <laughs> the information. Um, and then uh, there he's talking about doing a complete ERAD job on God in a Box, uh, a book. And, the Anarchic. Uh, the Anarchic's book, yeah. yeah. It, and uh, so, yeah, there's really interesting things going on here. But in the end, you know, I don't know. So um, nothing associates, nothing comes together. Everything is spread out and weird and like i don't know what good way yeah like i don't know what the fnm's vision for society is uh i don't know this grand unification that they're supposedly planning for but it just seems to come and go without much happening well robert's uh uh power play made sense to uh, to me in our modern society, I was thinking, all right. So Roberts wants Peak dead, so mm-hmm. he can he can continue to to be the in charge and 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 bend people bend the F N M to what he wants. Yes. But then when we find out he doesn't want him dead, yeah, and he. He's hoping for a change in in the perception of of reality in general, mm. due to what the uh, anarch people say. Then it, it it becomes even more convoluted. Yeah, because there's a there's a certain implication there that he's actually an utopian who, who yeah. wants this sense of oneness. But oh gosh, trying <laughs> yeah, to unpack what's happening there is so difficult. Right. <laughs> And I was also startled when Tinbane dies because just gone. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I'm fine with characters dying in a story, but it just felt like, 
what was he there for even to begin with? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like he was there only to make um Sebastian's infidelity seem like okay, we both kinda did it, so you know okay. that that that's really what he he feels like he's there for. Yeah, sort of uh, to make PKD feel good about himself. <laughs> right. So, so for every single bad mistake Sebastian makes in a few, few chapters, someone will come back and say, "Well, it was okay you did that because of this," or his inner monologue will be, "Oh, it was okay I did that because of this." It was like like you're going back to the yeah. fact that he doesn't save the Anarch Peak even after they're like, "Don't go look for your wife, save him," and he just blows right by it. And he's like, "I'm not saving you." And then in the next chapter, it becomes, "Oh, well, it was fine because X." It's it's just making yeah. excuses for his shitty decision-making. Yeah. Yep. All right. Are there any themes I missed um, overall, like just before we get into our final reviews, which are going to be, are going to be popular. Well, I found it interesting that the library, which, you know, works in real life as a means of disseminating information, connecting people to resources is here dedicated to, Enabling the process of losing knowledge. Of destruction. Yeah. Of destruction. I found it interesting, but I found it without a foundation. Yeah. Uh, why? I, I don't get any idea of motivation. Right. Right. This whole book lacks clear motivations. Uh, you know, especially if it is more a philosophical novel than a science fiction novel. You want a clearer beat on people's ideologies. Sure. And apart from Anarch Peak, nobody really seems to have a clear-cut ideology. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, you know how... That, I think, is why it felt like a mess, ultimately, more than anything else. It's a battle of ideas, but I don't know what the ideas are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, you know, yeah, the fundamental ideas, where they... Do you guys from. think that's because Dick oftentimes is... It's conflicted in his own right with his own personal ideology. That's that's a really good explanation. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think so, Anthony, and I think that's a really good point. I think he probably, I mean, he is confused a lot of the time. I mean, we know from his comments that you can't take anything that he says about. He'll say at one point uh, anything. <laughs> yeah, he'll say this is the worst book I ever wrote, and then the next quote you'll find from it will be like. You know, it'll say, like, Time Out of Joint is a total piece of crap. And then the next quote is, I think yeah. Time Out of Joint will be my book that will be remembered forever. And, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. right. Another thing I found interesting was that towards the end, Sebastian says, oh, I think Anarch Peak was the greatest person that ever lived apart from Gandhi. Yeah. He compares him directly to Gandhi. Yeah. And and also Anne Fisher, the femme fatale from the library, words I never thought I would combine in a sentence. <laughs> well, if his philosophy is true, then it doesn't matter because it's going to come out anyway, which sort of right. undermines <laughs> all the urgency around everyone fighting for <laughs> possession of peak. Right. Mm. Well, that's this book. Well, a bit of an undercooked book, probably, which is why we're finding so much. That's not really tracking when we try to unravel it. Only about five more years to gestate, to become yeah. a, a, an, a real idea. Yeah. yeah. Because it, it, it's really not there at this point. It's yeah, and, and, we know that, and we know that he'd already previously written, hadn't he already written Man in the High Castle by this point? Oh, yeah, for years. And Dr. Blood Money? 
Yeah. So, so we know that it's not just that he was trying to find his feet as a writer. He has successfully put together more conceptually coherent novels by this point. To me, lazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so there was a lack of structure going on. Um, and I will say, Jay, that you brought up the issue of like the lack of motivation for the library. That was huge for me. And I found myself, and you know, when, and you guys know this as being, when, when you read a bad book, as a writer, a lot of times you're trying to fix fix it mm-hmm. in your head what's going on. And I spent a lot of time trying to think about the motivation of the ERADs and the library. And I started thinking that that was the more interesting book was, and then I, but then I thought, well, it's oh, kind of, actually, yeah. And then I thought, well, it's kind of Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> you know, oh, um, sure. uh, <laughs> to a degree. And uh, because it was no intended. Yeah, I started to, when I was reading this, I started writing down notes saying like, oh, there's an idea here. And I started writing down this concept that I was coming up with about the ERADs and going on. And then I just looked at it and I was like, oh, it's just Fahrenheit 451. And then I just right. deleted it. I, I, so I just wanted to uh, just briefly read out such an interesting exchange towards the end of the book. Uh, this is when everyone's plans have fallen apart. And uh, somehow Sebastian has gone home again and somehow he finds time to fall asleep and he has a dream about Anarch Peak. And I heard you calling, the Anarch said. So I dropped what I had been doing and came to give aid. What can I do for you? Do you want to know the year? It is 4 BC. Why, Sebastian asked. What does that signify? He felt that it portended something vast. He felt awe. The Anarch said, you are the savior of mankind. Through it, you will be redeemed. You are the most important person ever born. What do I have to do, Sebastian said, to redeem mankind? You must die again, the Anarch answered. That is such a fascinating passage. And we never get to know what it meant. (laughs) Do we? I mean, guys, help me out here. No, no, they never gets addressed. Yeah, that is such a powerful passage. I started thinking, wow, we're going to have an 11th hour save. This book is suddenly going to open out into something. But it and then it just straight it, out, it yeah. just flat out ends. Yeah. yeah. And I that mean, is such good writing too. It really made you feel, oh, oh, the threads are going to come together. The only thing that that dream sequence does is lead to the other vision. He yes. Right the at the very end, yeah. That, uh, but that's it. I mean, yeah. it has no... And, has and no I found this idea of the spectral Anarch Peak turning up so interesting. You know, it reminded me a little of, you know, in the Bible, which obviously Philip K. Dick has also read a lot. <laughs> After the crucifixion, Christ turns up in this cafe where Thomas asks, are you really him? You right. know, there are these a couple of visions of, of, of Jesus that appear before people, and they think it's just a vision, but then he says, no, it's me in the flesh. And mm-hmm. I felt this was an interesting sort of inversion of that because he tries to touch Anarch Peak and his hand passes through him. That's interesting, you know, even at his most scattered, Dick and putting these interesting resonances into his books. Yeah. You know, I don't know. So anyways, let's get into reviews uh, so we can start wrapping things up. I'll sure. start by giving it two Sogum pipes up the butt uh, out <laughs> of five. Um, and that's as many Sogum pipes up the butt as I can fit for this for this book. Um, 
I, I wanted to like it. I like the themes. I love talking about it. I enjoyed the conversation yeah. again. Um, and I would put this with, I wouldn't say it's as bad. It's not as bad as Cosmic Puppets for me. That's still the low bar for, for PK. Is Cosmic Puppets the one that ends with Ahura uh, Mazda and, and what's his face sort of towering over this little American town? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. That was wild. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> That's I remember not knowing universal. what was happening there either. Yeah. That's our universal least favorite PKD as <laughs> far as Cosmic Puppets. Right, right. Um, but so I wouldn't say this is as bad as Cosmic Puppets, but it's <laughs> close. And um, it probably has the same star rating as Cosmic Puppets, but I'd still say this is significantly better than that. Because I think you gave Cosmic Puppets a four. Oh. No, no, I, I, I took it down. <laughs> Just fucking with you, David. <laughs> Are you sure? Did you look it up? Because I think I gave it two. Uh, yeah, two. Two. Okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with two. Um, Anthony, I you're... gave the Kraken Space one. You gave Kraken Space one. Yeah. Yeah, I like Kraken Space more than you did. So. Holy shit! I don't even remember Kraken Space. I <laughs> forgot we read that one. Um, I'm gonna give it. I'll probably give it two. Confusing made-up manifestos uh, <laughs> um, just because out of five. Um, I don't... It's not... It's bad. It's as bad as the Cosmic Puppets, but for different things. Uh, it, it's not a competently written book. It reads more like a book of a ton of different ideas with characters who reflect those ideologies in some way or another but we don't get any breathing room to explore like jay was saying the ideologies or the the characters for for a lot of the book and i think that there are more interesting characters than being given the typical dick bumbling boring businessman protagonist which is exactly what we get here and we get that in a lot of his books and at this point we've read how many have we read a lot um I I think that it's a huge misstep to s- kind of sit back with your typical dick characters when we have Anarch Peak, even mm. the elderly woman who's bir- who's rebirthed, resurrect, sorry, resurrected at the beginning of the book, and we could we could explore these people within this world more. I think would have been a better idea. And so, there's even a guy that is resurrected right before Anarch Peak. Oh, yeah. and an older woman too older woman too yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. I mean not not days before but moments before oh yeah yeah okay and the 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 only the only thing I truly thought was kind of funny aside from smoking up your butt and turning it into food is um <laughs> they do kind of treat the the bible like it's a magic eight ball mm. because she is just oh, standing yeah. there saying, oh, yeah, you know, I just look at it and I'll pick a passage and I'll read it, which I don't know if the dick was intentionally making fun of how people do utilize the Bible in that that way, but I thought that was kind of... Actually, I remember in the 80s and the 70s, yeah, people used to... I've heard of this. They used to believe in, in like, this this cosmic luck of picking the right thing, and Mm -hmm. it was very popular... Uh, among, don't forget among that adults, uh, not yeah. not teenagers, but adults. 
And don't forget that uh, Philip K. Dick supposedly composed The Man on the High Castle with the aid of the Yi Jing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, cartomancy is sort of something that is on his mind from yeah. time to time. And that, that, that was quite an interesting passage. Yeah. And it is one of the lighter, sort of more dynamic scenes of dialogue in the book. Well, because it's basically Sebastian and his wife, Tindane right? Tindane has a, a totally different interpretation. Oh, yes, it's Tinbane and Lotta. Yeah. Uh, of the passages she reads. Yeah, he does. He does. Basically, you know, this is your mind interpreting what you read, not, Absolutely. not the passage itself. It's your interpretation. Mm. All right. So, uh, JP, what's your final uh, rating of this book? Well, I'm always tempted to be kind and give everything a minimum of three, but I think I will go with two out of five because it doesn't come together well enough. And yet there's enough in it that it's not a total washout. Like I have to admire the sheer intellectual audacity of Dick, even in a novel like this, where he's maybe sort of rushing through it, half, half assing it that he will just dump in passages of fairly abstruse theological discussion in the middle of, of the novel. And, and these are important things to him, uh, which I think is one of the qualities that we go back to his novels for, that he is so earnest and sincere about his philosophical themes. He is trying to think through the basic uh, nature of humanity, of identity, of reality. And that seriousness is present even in a relatively minor PKD novel like this one. But uh, will it ever be in my top five or top 10 uh, PKD novels? I, I doubt it. Yeah, it's definitely not me. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. Um, Langhorn. All right. Because you all picked two, I'm going 1.5. <laughs> uh this is not the price is right. This is not the... <laughs> I'm going minimum bid. Minimum <laughs> bid. <laughs> uh, 1.5, I don't know, eradicated theses. <laughs> Eradicated books. Theses. 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 Right. What is, the, what is the plural of thesis? Theses. I believe it's theses. Theses. Theses, eradicated theses. All right, interesting. Okay. Uh, All right. So, now, final question before well, I can I explain? Yes, go ahead. Sorry. God damn, David. Uh, so, so I first of all, I, I judge things. I go one to five, basically one or zero. If if such a thing exists, means you did not write a novel. Hmm. It is, not, it is not cohesive enough to to be a novel. This is dangerously, dangerously close mm. to not being a novel. It might be a collection of ideas loosely based around one thing, but it is dangerously close to not making any cohesive sense. And uh, there are no there are no characters like which often I can be fine with as long as there are characters to hate. There are no mm. characters to hate. There are no characters to feel about. You're just disappointed by everything. Other than the characters we see for like five seconds. There is a goddamn psychic priest 
in this novel. Yes. A psychic priest. And yet we see him for five seconds. That is the most interesting character in the whole thing. And then there's a surly tech guy. I mean, come on. Give us the people we are interested in. Well, and, and I would love a whole novel set in the in the um, free Negro, Negro municipality, right? Like, sure. I, I would like to, like Anthony says, hear what the Anarch Peak had to say. I would like all kinds of things from this novel. But uh, it doesn't give us any of those things. It talks about shitty library people and and shitty regular people. So, yeah, one and a half. This might be my least favorite because I did, I have to admit, there, there are times, there were pages where I was like, all right, I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'll read two sentences and go into the next page. So I did that for like 15, 20 pages through this because it was just awful, awful. Okay, so um, that, that's pretty hardcore. So... Larry, you, you think you can fix this as a movie? Yeah, yeah, this is a good movie. I mean, it, you have a a flawed main character, you have a femme fatale, you have several evils. I mean, I I basically wrote it down. the The first half of this is a Tarantino esque uh, heist movie or or MacGuffin movie as we used to call them, because basically everyone's after the same goal. Find this guy, you know? So so find where he's first, buried. The first half is taken care of. Introduce all your factions. Introduce your team. You know, this is an action movie. And you can put the philosophy along the way, but but it's an action movie. It's a Tarantino-esque action movie where in the finale this this brilliant man somehow disarms a a giant battle that has been going on that's how i see it so the idea is that the whole thing centers around saving anarch peak and then he's able to to like stop everything in the end like yeah so do you have any ideas on who is philosophy with his you know, beatificness. Do you have a dream director or writer or any of that? I mean, I I think Guy Ritchie would be good for something like that. Uh, I don't know. I I can't remember the the name of the guy that that did Smoking Aces, but that guy would be good. The guy that did uh, what? Joe Carnahan? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um... I don't know. Like, obviously, this wouldn't be my first choice of a pick to to adapt for PKD. But I do agree with you. You could fix a lot of the problems. Um, I think that if you're more focusing on the resurrection thing, just like I, I wouldn't make it faithful at all um, in, in that sense. Um, but if you're going to do the time, if you're going to do like the biological time reversal thing, I would, I would focus it much more on the biological than having any of the other stuff. Um, or do what I was talking about earlier, which is turn it into much more of a horror set piece where it's like epilepsy, where it's a thing that 
doesn't happen to everyone that it's like something that can kind of just occur to you and um that there might be some like congenital reason why they know anarch peak is coming back like he had I feel like that's that's a much harder thing to to film because you got to go backwards forwards yeah uh, much more intense than than i was thinking but yeah it worked um, I don't really have a director or writer in mind per se, but um, and this would be low on my list um, if I was ESP, like trying to figure out which uh, dick, um, properties to adapt. However, if they wanted to <laughs> ask us to do it, I would do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that being said, um, Anthony or JP, either of you guys have any ideas for how you would fix this as a film? Yes, bar no way. <laughs> Go ahead, Jay. <laughs> you know, I think it could actually be a good mini series. Uh, oh yeah, you'd have time to flesh out more of the ideas. I would remove some of the more gross aspects of the time reversal because they yeah. just detract uh, from both the action and the philosophy. Yeah, they don't. I just don't know how you can make that gel with with the mood of of a of a serious or serious slash exciting uh, action slash philosophy miniseries. You I would be really interested to have Zal Batmandlidge and Britt Marling do it. Uh, they're who? the ones who made OA. Oh, uh, the OA, yeah. OA and the movie Sound of My Voice and another. Earth. Right. So they're able to do this kind of slow burning, intellectually challenging sci-fi-ish thing. And I'd be very interested to see what they do with it. Nice. I'd be very and like I said, maybe a mini series more than a feature film. I'd be interested to see the um, production design meeting where they where they design the sogum pipes. Oh, cool. No, no sogum pipes. There's no, no sogum pipes. Pipe. There will be no disgorging yeah. and engorging. Yeah, that would still be an interesting meeting. Like, so yeah, we're right. design what? If we're gonna do this, <laughs> Anthony. I'm somewhere between Larry and Jay on it. I'd li- I don't have a director in mind, but I-, I agree that a miniseries would be better because you would have time to explore these characters and even maybe throw in a couple new ones that are uh, either combinations of other characters that we get in here that aren't nearly as fleshed out or just a couple new ones and explore you know, what it means to be reverse, like resurrected and yeah. you know, kind of if the Anarch Peak is, is this kind of a messiah, you know, what does he see that's different than the other people that have been resurrected, right? So, like, why is he more important than someone else? Um, well, and, you, and focus you on get that from the from the novel is that he has such a clear vision of what he saw when he was dead. Oh, you, and then they never tell us what that is. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so they. So I would say that they you say he has that. a clear vision, but we get no that. indication of what that is. But you have that to work from. Sure. You know. um, and I think I might, I might nix the, um, the, the, the husband and wife relationship. And, you know, one of them sleeping with the, this, this woman from this one's faction and his wife is, is wanting to bang out with the cop. It, it just, it's very PKD. I'm working through my divorce melodrama that I think does the story a disservice. When, as yeah. I've said a million times already, all the interesting characters right. are the 
characters that are on the periphery of what's going on. To the, the team, yeah, the, the people in the library. Those are the, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, right. And it's not like the child, the child operatives. Uh, yeah, the library could be a really, really interesting and creepy thing. Yeah, yeah. That they, they reminded me of the kids from The Brood, and mm-hmm. and and also just to kind of think about it, like, what is it like to be in the mind of a character who knows that they're slowly and slowly. De- mm. de-aging and are going to end up back in a have, womb. I mean, you have a Flowers for Algernon kind of situation here where mm-hmm. everyone knows they're going to get dumb. Everyone yeah. knows. They're going yeah. to get stupider and younger and eventually be children. I mean, that fundamentally... yeah. Is a movie and, and psychologically, what does that do to you? Yeah. You know, that that is far and away more interesting to me than anything Dick does in this book. So it's a lot of stuff he alludes to, but he never explores it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess in that sense, that's where you really could benefit from having a TV series and to be really able to extend it. And yeah, if you can take a, a whole episode and just concentrate on one person that is, that is, Mm-hmm. Coming to that age where they're, they know they're going to be stupid, yep. and yep. they know they're going to be young and dumb. Either that, or you have really precocious kids who like have the intelligence of having sure. lived a long life. And oh, but imagine having to deal with no, a bunch that, of eight-year-olds with dementia. Reality works, David. <laughs> you don't you don't retain any knowledge. That's true. That's true. Um, so become- so mark it down. That's two now that we'd turn into a miniseries instead of a movie. Yeah, right. The first the being one. the three stigmata. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, those are the, the two, yeah. Well, um, and we'd much rather see three stigmata. <laughs> I, honestly, I do both now. I, I'm in, I'm into both. I mean, this one would work. That's what I'm saying. It would work. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think building off the heist, too, of like the, of the, of not just anarch peak but looking for very specific people who you can profit from sure. like finding different dead people i mean in in that way you could come up with a, a an entire series yeah is just finding the right people whatever you know episode to episode different different people you've saved and then be like a, the spiritual like a, questions you get really really dark you have one person on the team whose job, who all they care about is finding the right people to make profit. And then you have mm-hmm. another person on the team whose spiritual quest is for the answer. Yeah. And that's where you get into the themes. Yeah. And then. Um, See the, that's the problem with this is the potential is almost endless. Yeah. But what we got was terrible. Yeah. But you know, it isn't endless. This podcast. This episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, what are we doing next? We are doing the Ganymede Takeover. Um, you got that one? All, all right. Oh, wait. Is there two authors for this? There are. Ray Nelson, the, the They Live guy. All right. Earth has been taken over by a strange alien force, creatures whose instinct for survival overrides any human resistance. Then a vital weapon with the power of electronically warping the mind falls into the hands of a terrorist group still strong enough to oppose the aliens, a weapon so powerful that it cannot be controlled. 
the control of Earth is in the balance, and the balance is a terrifyingly precarious one. So I guess we're going back to space, Pirates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're going back to space. Yeah, so Counterclock World, that was interesting. J- uh, JP, thank you for coming and being a part. Yeah, it was good to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, really enjoyed your input. Yeah. Thanks um, for having me. This was fun and super interesting. <laughs> Right. So, and as we always say, uh, stay paranoid. Keep it paranoid, dickheads. Be paranoid. Goodbye. Always paranoid.